Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Donald Trump wants a mistrial in his civil fraud case. The Supreme Court's new ethics code is much ado about nothing. A First Amendment challenge to charges over false election robocalls. And crypto investors sue SBF and celebrity promoters. We have a rogue judge who rules that properties are worth a tiny fraction, one one hundredth a tiny fraction of what they actually are. It was almost like Donald Trump was forecasting his motion for a mistrial even before his civil fraud trial began last month. He's arguing that the judge has tainted the proceedings with tangible and overwhelming bias. The New York Attorney General took six weeks to present her case that the former president deliberately inflated his net worth to fool banks and insurers into giving him better terms on hundreds of millions of dollars in loans. And as the Trump team kicked off its case on Monday, the first witness, Donald Trump Jr., gave a snapshot of the defense that his father has been harping on. Basically, no harm, no foul. You guys have got to think about the precedent that this case sets. If an attorney general can years later after all parties of transactions are paid back in full with interest, making hundreds of millions of dollars where they have no complaint, where they said they wouldn't have done anything differently. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, an adjunct professor at NYU Law School. So, Jennifer, tell us about this mistrial motion that everyone knows is going nowhere. Well, it's really the same complaint that they've been making in court about the judge and specifically his law clerk. The defense has been really up in arms about the law clerk and accusing her of making facial expressions she shouldn't make and passing notes and taking a greater role than they think she should be taking in the trial. And they've been making those objections in court. And that really is the focus of the mistrial motion that the clerk is taking an outsized role and the judge himself is also biased against the defendants. And so putting those things together, they allege that a mistrial should be granted. I have to say, it does seem like the judge is a little unorthodox with what's happening in the courtroom. But is there anything wrong with having the law clerk pass him notes and asking her questions and things like that? Not the way that you put it. There's certainly nothing wrong with relying on your law clerk to help you try the matter, do research and give you the results, even give her opinion about what's happening. You know, there are no rules around really how you're supposed to use your law clerks in that way. The only issue would be if there were demonstrated bias. I mean, I do think that if they could show an actual bias on the part of the judge or the clerk, and then they would try to show that, you know, the the law clerk's bias is infecting the judge, 
then, you know, you could see a court saying, and it's certainly not going to be this court, right, because mm-hmm. this judge doesn't believe anything wrong is happening, and he's not going to grant this motion. But then, of course, it goes up on appeal. So you could see, in theory, an appellate court saying, wow, you know, the law clerk told the judge you know, all these untrue and really prejudicial things about one of the parties, and the judge said that he took that into account, and that's why he's ruling against them. I mean, that's the sort of hypothetical that you could see an appellate court saying, well, wait a minute, that seems like bias to us, and, you know, maybe we'll consider this. But we don't have anything like that here. You know, we have some allegations that aren't even true, you know, the nonsense about the law clerk dating Chuck Schumer. And then there's a couple of, like, the law clerk had made a donation to a Democrat, and those sorts of things are never going to rise to the level of demonstrating bias if you give to someone of a political party that's the opposite of the political party of one of the litigants, that's just never going to rise to the level of, of any sort of demonstrated bias. Let's turn to Trump's defense, and I'm going to sort of go through what I see as the defense. So one is the valuation of properties, like the ones listed on Donald Trump's financial statements, is not an exact science. It's more like an art than a science. And not only did Trump testify to this, but they've had accounting experts testified. One said, the process of determining the estimated value of a property could result in a range of values, no one of which is the right or wrong answer. It's a judgment call. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is the defense that they have to make. The judge has effectively already rejected this by finding that there was fraud here because the judge found, you know, it's not so much that the statement said 10000 and a more reasonable amount would be 5000 I mean, the judge found that there were magnitudes of difference between what's an accurate assessment and the assessments that were given by the defendants on the financial statement. So it's not even a close call. So even if you say, listen, we put in proof that it's not an exact science, it's like, okay, fair enough, but is it not an exact science enough to talk about, you know, hundreds of percentages, you know, (laughs) one of the properties, it was like 2,300 times or something between what the judge found was a reasonable assessment and the assessment on the paper. So at some point, you can say all that, but it doesn't really get you as far as you need to go. And the heart of this has already been decided by the judge. So I don't think he's going to be swayed by testimony that says, hey, it's not an exact science. You know, let's treat it more as an art and cut him some slack for that reason. Another defense seems to be, instead of blaming the lawyers, as Trump may do in other cases, blame the accountants. So Eric Trump testified that he relied on the accounting firms to assure the financial statements were accurate. Donald Trump Jr. testified he signed off on the statements but left the work to outside accountants. And Trump himself has said, you know, I paid the accountants all this money. Where does that get them? Yeah, I don't think this one's going to work either for largely the same reasons. The judge has already considered that as part of his finding that the defendants did commit fraud here. I mean, the, the statements themselves talk about what it was that the accountants were doing and described it as more of a compilation, right, that they're relying on the documents and the accuracy of the documents provided by the organization, and they're not attesting to that themselves, the accountants. So I don't think that the judge is going to buy that particular argument that, you know, I'm not responsible. Someone said it's kind of like 
I can't be convicted of tax fraud. You have to go after my accountant, even though, you know, I lied to him about what I was paying in taxes or what this particular property was worth or so on. You can't get away with it by just kind of saying, hey, you know, I have an accountant, and so therefore I'm free and clear of all liability. Another thing is, Trump testified and Ivanka testified about the relationship with Deutsche Bank. And Trump said that Deutsche Bank was extremely happy and thrilled with him. Does it matter if the person or entity being defrauded doesn't realize it or doesn't care? So this is actually the most interesting to me, because in a way it doesn't, right? This suit is not being brought by the bank saying we've been harmed, we want you know our money back or whatever being brought by the attorney general, who's really standing in the place of New Yorkers and saying, New Yorkers, we as a state and as a people in the state have an interest in these financial institutions not being duped, right? Not being lied to by companies. We don't want companies to behave that way. And if you do, we're going to sue you. So it's not that the banks have to be harmed. But all of that said, it is really interesting Not so much that the banks weren't harmed and he paid back the loans, and that's an excuse. That goes absolutely nowhere because then the comeback was, well, but if the banks knew that these loans were as risky as they were because the valuations were so off, perhaps you wouldn't have gotten such a low interest rate, right? We would have taken that risk and charged you more for it so that we made more money and we lost out on that additional money. What's puzzling to me is that the attorney general really didn't get any witness to say that they had relied on them and that they would have, for example, charged a higher interest rate if they knew the worth of the properties were being exaggerated. And I can only think that they didn't ask those direct questions and get that evidence because they wouldn't have, right? The witnesses weren't going to say that. So that is kind of interesting because I do think it goes to the amount ultimately that the judge will find should be paid, right? The fine the disgorgement amount, really is impacted by how much the banks would have made compared to what they did make. And if they're saying, we don't care, we really didn't set the interest rate with the values of the property in mind, the accurate values of the property, then I think that probably does impact the damages amount here. So I do think that's an interesting argument that has some legs here because of the way the trial played out and because of the fact that they didn't get this testimony that I frankly expected they would get that someone would say, sure, it matters to me because I've got to set an interest amount and it's going to be impacted by the value of the assets that's behind it. And why do you think the defense team keeps bringing up the disclaimer on the financial statements, saying it absolves him from any liability, even though the judge has rejected that argument several times? large part, they're kind of laying their appeal record, right? They have to make these arguments and they want them to be fleshed out with their witnesses and so on so that the appellate court can consider them. Listen, they're taking their shot. Trump did have a win in the case on Thursday. A New York appellate judge temporarily lifted Judge Ngoran's gag order that had barred Trump from commenting about court personnel. Thanks so much, Jennifer. That's former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. Coming up, the Supreme Court's new ethics code. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more. At CutterEconomicForum.com. 
You have to take me to shore. According to the code of the Order of the Red. First, your return to shore was not part of our negotiations nor our agreement, so I must do nothing. And secondly, you must be a pirate for the pirate's code to apply, and you're not. And thirdly, the code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. The Supreme Court's new ethics code seems a lot like the Pirates' Code, more like guidelines than actual rules. For the first time, the justices have adopted a code of conduct, responding to pressure from a stream of ethics controversies. But the code won't necessarily mean any changes in the way the nine justices conduct themselves. In fact, the justices basically admit that in the introduction, saying, for the most part, these rules and principles are not new. Joining me is constitutional law expert David Super, a professor at Georgetown Law. Is anything different for the justices because they've adopted this code? This is an astute PR move. That's all it is. There have been a number of disclosures of extremely questionable activities by several justices, most prominently Justices Thomas and Alito, receiving valuable trips, other financial favors from rich, ideologically committed donors, many of whom have business in front of the court. So the court, I think, felt that it needed to do something. There were justices calling for an ethics code, and my assumption is that the compromise they reached between no ethics code and an ethics code was something that is in name an ethics code, but that has few, if any, of the functions of an ethics code. In the statement of the court that precedes the code, there's a little bit of griping about this misunderstanding that justices regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. Go figure. And it says the court has long had the equivalent of common law ethics rules. Does that statement mean that these are the same rules that Justice Clarence Thomas, for example, followed in accepting all those luxury trips, the underwriting of the RV, etc.? The fact that he did that and that there has been no action about that on the court suggests that these so-called common law ethics rules are largely useless. If any judge on a lower court had done this, they would be facing serious problems. Unlike the rules for lower court judges, there's no enforcement mechanism at all in this code. That's correct. The failure of this code is twofold. One, its content is extraordinarily weak. And second, there is no procedure for enforcing it. It is certainly true that the Supreme Court is not and should not be subject to the executive branch or the legislative branch, but it could set up its own enforcement mechanism. It could, for example, have a process for people to file complaints, have an office that investigates those complaints and makes recommendations to the court, and a procedure for the court itself to act on these matters. It could also have a procedure where a justice's behavior is particularly problematic of referring that information to Congress, which does have the power to begin impeachment proceedings. Of course, Congress hasn't impeached a justice since the early 1800s. But moving on, there have been a lot of complaints about the justices not recusing themselves in cases where it seems like they should. So when it comes to recusals, the justices include a line that's not in the 
code of conduct for United States judges. It says, quote, the rule of necessity may override the rule of disqualification. Tell us what they mean by that. What they are basically saying is that even if they have a conflict of interest or some other compelling reason why they shouldn't sit on a case, that the desirability of having nine justices sit on a case may justify disregarding that conflict of interest. The rationale is that while we have many lower courts and many lower court judges, and most lower courts don't sit as a complete body ever, the Supreme Court is unique, and if you have a decision rendered by less than all of the justices, it may not get five votes for any result, and that leaves the state of the law uncertain. That's a problem the Supreme Court has dealt with many times over the years when justices have properly recused themselves for any number of reasons, and occasionally it does create hiccups in the law or uncertainties. But the same thing can happen when all nine justices sit and they can't agree on any one resolution to a case. So this is not a huge problem, but it does signal a lack of seriousness about ethics. Better to have a hiccup in a case than to have a justice sitting who should be recused. Also, while lower court judges are told they, quote, shall disqualify when their impartiality might be questioned, the justices change the word shall to should disqualify. So are their rules for recusal less stringent than the rules that they set out for lower court judges? Yes, they are. Indeed, the word shall does not appear anywhere in their code. It appears several places in the code for lower court judges, but nowhere in this new code for the Supreme Court. So they've chosen not to live by the standards they impose on lower court judges. The standards they impose on lower court judges are appropriate. I wouldn't want to see them loosened, but it's telling that they're unwilling to live by the same standards themselves. Let's take the major tax code case that's coming up where Justice Alito was interviewed, a friendly interview, for the Wall Street Journal by one of the lawyers. Under this code, should Justice Alito recuse himself from that case? The code is rather vague. I think as a matter of common sense, Justice Alito absolutely should. He was under public criticism, and this attorney gave him help in defending himself against that public criticism, which is a very valuable thing. If I was being criticized the way Justice Alito did, I would prefer that friendly interview to $100,000. So it is giving a justice something of great value as a case that's involving you is going in front of the court. It seems obvious he should accuse himself, but the code is so vague that it certainly does not compel him to do so and provides no means for the public to complain if he doesn't do so. Would this code have prevented the conservative justices from attending the Federalist Society gala last week that was headlined by Justice Amy Coney Barrett? No, it doesn't prevent much of anything, and it certainly wouldn't prevent that. When a gala like that is raising money for an organization that is pursuing a litigation agenda before the court, that is directed at the court, so you are helping fund one side of many cases that you will be hearing, that would seem to be entirely inappropriate. We wouldn't want a judge to be making contributions to the lawyers on either side. And being a headliner at a gala and boost ticket sales has the same effect.
the court has always been shrouded in secrecy. The public doesn't know how it goes about its work, really. And there's no transparency in this either. There's no way to tell even whether a justice has violated the code, at least until a ProPublica story or something comes out about it. So, no, this is not at all transparent. And this is going to lead to further erosion of public confidence in the court. Things of this kind that came out in earlier generations ended justices' careers. Justice Abe Fortas was forced off the court for involvements with potential litigants that were far thinner than the ones we're seeing right now. And members of both parties and justices across the ideological spectrum insisted that he step down, and he ultimately did. We've completely changed our practices, and our ethics standards are not keeping up. And it doesn't appear this code is going to help much. Thanks so much, David. That's Professor David Super of Georgetown Law. Coming up, FTX investors sue SBF and celebrities. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. I call it the wheel. Hmm. I don't think so. What does it do? It grows. Yeah, so does a bagel, okay? A bagel you can eat. One of the worst ideas I've ever heard. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. Remember that Larry David commercial for FTX that had them laughing at the Super Bowl in 2022? Tom Brady, Giselle Bündchen, Steph Curry, and Shaquille O'Neal were among the celebrities who also touted the cryptocurrency exchange in commercials. Well, investors who claim they lost billions in the collapse of FTX are trying to pin the blame not just on Sam Bankman-Fried and his inner circle, but also on the celebrities who were paid to endorse it, as well as its accountants, lawyers, and bankers. Joining me is Braden Perry, a former federal regulatory enforcement attorney and a partner at Kenny Hertz Perry. So, Braden, tell us about this sweeping class action lawsuit that was filed in Miami federal court. Yeah, so this is a lawsuit that was brought by a number of individuals who were either investors or had some sort of financial interest in FTX. And they brought it against a number of entities, including celebrity endorsers, accountants, the actual members of FTX itself, as well as others. So it's a wide-ranging case that essentially boils down to FTX was falsely providing information to the public, and the public somehow either invested or had some sort of financial interest in FTX and therefore were harmed. So let's start with the celebrities, because that's where everyone starts. So what does the law require of celebrity endorsers? So generally, the law requires not much. And what it requires is that the celebrity endorser knows what the product is and how it works. And two, that generally there's some sort of disclaimer ordinarily at the bottom of the advertisement or elsewhere 
it indicates celebrity endorser is a paid endorser for that product as well as the truthfulness. And so the endorser cannot provide information that's false or misleading to the public. Does that mean that Jennifer Garner actually has to use the drugstore creams she claims she uses? Generally, that's the case. And so you'll see these advertisements with certain restaurants where celebrities are at or certain products that they're using. And it's not an exclusive use. And so it can be a very high level. So if Jenner Garner has used a product that's been provided to her, she can certainly endorse that product. And so it's not a lifelong or a over-the-top type of use requirement. But generally, yeah, if the celebrity endorser is going to endorse a product, that celebrity endorser should be using that product. So does that mean that Tom Brady and Larry David and all the others should have been invested in FTX? Yeah, I don't know if they should have been invested in FTX. Obviously, they should have known what FTX is and what it does, and that would likely be their exchange of choice if they were going to be part of the crypto movement, not necessarily a needed part of that movement. That's why I'm wondering, when sophisticated investors didn't know about FTX and the government found out much later, how are celebrities supposed to know? Yeah, that's the big question. That's going to be the legal question is, what did the celebrities know? What influence did they have on these investments? And that's really the crux of the legal argument. In this case, the class action is so wide with all the different entities associated with FTX. You know, the accountant, Stan Beckman Freed's one of the defendants, all these celebrity so. endorsers, everyone is involved. And so there's going to be from the defense side, lots of finger pointing as to who knew what and when and where and how. And so that's really going to be what the plans need to prove is whether or not these celebrity endorsers were intricate in this false and misleading product. Besides the finger pointing, tell us what some lines of defense might be. The defense teams have several different lines of defense. You know, they weren't specific to the actual accounts. They didn't provide terms or conditions of the accounts. They weren't detailing what the accounts could or could not do. And so that's a general defense to the claims. However, they knew or should have known that there was misleading information by not providing some of that information about these accounts. And that can be counterproductive to their case. Also, if I'm sitting on the defense table and I see that the main group, the head of FTX, has been convicted of crimes, I'm certainly pointing to that, saying, hey, these people were committing crimes, were victims just as much as you were. Yeah, so the Sam Bankman-Fried conviction and the guilty pleas of his inner circle should be helpful to the defendants here. Now, some of the other targets of the lawsuit are professional advisors ranging from an accounting firm, investment firm, and a bank. Those seem like more reasonable defendants to me. Yeah, and they should be. And ordinarily, when you look at the history of massive frauds in finance, Madoff is the best picture of that. There is still ongoing litigation involving accountants, professional individuals who had some part of his scheme. That's the case here. You know, obviously, the accountants, the investment firms, all of these pieces were part of the ongoing massive dollars that FTX was bringing in and maintaining during its lifetime. And those are the traditional defendants you'd see. Celebrity endorsers, frankly, you don't see that often. And a group settled just because likely they didn't want to be bothered with the litigation nor part of the litigation. And there's a valid reason to settle and get out. But I think the ones that are still in there have relatively valid defenses that, one, they were victims to, and two, 
that their endorsements had no input on what the actual underlying fraud of FDX was about. You mentioned the Bernie Madoff investor suits played out for well over a decade. Do you think the FTX case will be even more complicated to unwind than Madoff was? Yeah, I do. You know, we've been talking strictly about this. This one plaintiff case involves a number of celebrity endorsers. You have to remember that the criminal case is essentially over. There will be appeals. There will be other issues in this, although I don't think any appeals will be successful. Then you got the regulatory action. So you got the CFTC, you got the SEC. Ordinarily, within these parallel criminal cases, those cases likely will be settled because there's not much else to go after. The big issue is going to be bankruptcy receiverships in the different jurisdictions and trying to claw back as much of this lost money as possible to provide to investors. So that's going to be the main focus for the next decade is the receivership action to claw back all this individual funds from all these various entities. And then you'll have these civil cases that are trying to find those that may not have exposure otherwise. So these celebrity endorsers, those types of things. And so it's going to be complicated. And the fact that crypto wasn't regulated like Madoff's Ponzi scheme was, there's no central regulator. You get the SEC, you got the CFTC that are part of this. But unlike Madoff, where you could point directly at the SEC, there's really no nexus of jurisdiction between anyone. So it's going to take a long time. You know, FTX had offices all over the place. There's multiple jurisdictions. It will take a while to unwind what this has become, and it could be could be longer than what Madoff looked at. And at the sentencing of Sam Bankman-Fried and the three people who flipped, will the judge order restitution? The way it generally works when it comes to parallel criminal slash regulatory slash liquidation proceedings is anything the government gets. And so as part of the sentencing for, the for Sam Beckman-Fried, for Carolyn Ellison, for Wang, for all of these individuals, there'll be a restitution element as their sentence. And that will go into the bucket of the receiver. And so you'll likely see any ill-gotten gains these individuals received will be part of that restitution order under the sentencing that will flow into the receivership action that will be part of that bucket to provide to investors. So, yeah, they will likely have large restitution positions as part of their sentencing. Are there other competing class action lawsuits, or has the Miami lawsuit been certified as a class? When it comes to all of these different actions, the priority number one was the criminal case. And while criminal case is ongoing, generally all the civil cases are stayed. That's the case in the Florida action. At this point in time, there's been ongoing discovery about that class action. There's not been a decision to certify the class action as of yet. Now that the criminal case is over, I think all of these courts are going to get back in full gear to addressing all of these issues now. I mean, there's going to be a number of evidentiary issues from the trial. The vast government investigation could be a treasure trove of information for the plaintiffs when it comes to these types of things. And so the courts are now going to have to face that issue and begin moving again procedurally on these cases. And there's always the possibility that some of these celebrities might want to settle just to put some distance between themselves and SBF. Thanks so much, Braden. That's Braden Perry of Kenny Hertz Perry. Coming up next, the Michigan Supreme Court considers false election robocalls. 
I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Mail-in voting sounds great, but did you know that if you vote by mail, your personal information will be part of a public database that will be used by police departments to track down old warrants and be used by credit card companies to collect outstanding debts? In the run-up to the 2020 elections, thousands of Detroit residents got that robocall, falsely claiming that police, creditors, and the CDC could use mail-in voting data to issue warrants, collect on debts, and push mandatory vaccines. The Michigan Attorney General filed felony charges against conservative operatives Jack Berkman and Jacob Wall, accusing them of orchestrating the robocalls aimed at suppressing the vote of predominantly black voters in Detroit. Berkman and Wall have already been sanctioned in other states on similar voter intimidation charges, but they're arguing to the Michigan Supreme Court that that state's law is too broad to enforce. Joining me is First Amendment expert Eugene Volick, a professor at UCLA Law School. Is this conflict, the role of the state to protect voters from intimidation and the Constitution's protections for speech, political speech, is this at the heart of a lot of U.S. election laws? Depends what you mean by intimidation. So there's no doubt that trying to intimidate voters by threatening violence against them is a crime, and there's no First Amendment defense for threats of violence. On the other hand, courts have generally been quite skeptical, especially in recent years, of attempts to police false statements in election campaigns. So there have been laws that ban knowingly false statements in election campaigns, outright lies, and the courts still have struck down those laws, chiefly because they basically put too much power in the government's hands to decide what is true and what is false in an election campaign, with too much risk of kind of political enforcement. And part of the problem with the law in this case is that, at least in the government's understanding of it, it applies to basically trying to get people not to vote or to vote differently through either possibly misleading statements about possible risks to them, or perhaps any statements that essentially use fear in order to change people's votes. That's a very broad category, especially given that the statute here talks about attempt by means of menace or other corrupt means or device to influence an elector's vote. So it looks like under the government's theory, if there was a message sent out saying, if you vote for Trump, he's going to uh, send your children off to some war, let's say. That's an attempt to use fear. It's possibly an attempt to use misleading statements. He's going to do that. How do we know he's going to do that? So generally speaking, most courts would say that's not something that the government can police for in elections. And yet under the state's theory in this case, it's possible that the law is as broad as that. During the oral argument, some of the Michigan justices questioned the application of the statute. Justice Elizabeth Welch asked, what about the scenario of the millions of mailers we get? What if someone says, don't vote, they're all crooks? 
And Justice David Viviano asked whether the law could be used to charge someone like Trump over his frequent statements that the absentee voting process is rigged. So does it seem like the justices were keying in to what you just said? Right. I think the justices are worried that the statute on its face is very broad. And indeed, claims don't vote by absentee, the absentee process is rigged. Under the government's theory, they may not be menacing in the sense that they don't have the element of possible threat that the government will do something to you. But under the government's theory, that would be a corrupt means or device because it would be misleading or outright false. So I think the justices are recognizing that this statute is written quite broadly. It may well be that a narrower statute would be constitutional. It may well be that there is a narrower statute that would be both constitutional and broad enough to cover the speech of these particular defendants. But I'm not sure that this statute is one such. Well, I noticed the defendants cited you in their brief, Eugene. So we'll see if the Michigan Supreme Court agrees. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Professor Eugene Volok of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.